Now I want to talk about base saturation, what that is, percent base saturation, and then of course soil nutrient balancing, or should we say base satur percent base saturation balancing. Okay, I think there's some, now if you get this book right here, it talks a tremendous amount about base saturation balancing. That's Michael Estera's book, uh, The Ideal Soil Handbook. So I'm going to talk about that now. So we spoke earlier about cation exchange capacity, soil nutrients in the soil solution, and plant root exchange, or these nutrients ex exchanging with the plant roots. So, base saturation is the measure of total bases in the soil. So when you go back and you look at this and you take that sample, we're going to say, how many bases? Does anybody remember from chemistry class what a base is? Base, those are the positively charged, the, the, the cations. So when we say base saturation of the soil, we're asking how many bases, cations, how many cations are in that soil? When we say percent base saturation, that is the percent of the soil's cation exchange capacity that is occupied by a given nutrient, say calcium or magnesium, etc. cetera. Uh, base saturation and percent base saturation are not necessarily the same thing in the literature. I just want to share that for you. I'm going to focus mostly on percent base saturations because base saturation usually does not include aluminum and hydrogen <clears throat> because, well, of course, what is pH? The, the negative log of the concentration of hydrogen ions, right? That's what it is in chemistry. So pH is just a measure of either the hydrogen or the hydroxides. If we're less, or really it's actually most of the hydrogens. So if we're in a, if we have a pH less than seven, then that means we have more hydrogen ions than we have hydroxide ions floating in our soil in our solution, right? In our, which is in this case our soil solution. Um, if we are greater, a pH is greater than seven, then we have more hydroxides than we have hydrogens. Okay, so we don't really focus on hydrogen because we consider it an acid. And aluminum drives acidity, like I talked about earlier, so again, we don't look at aluminum. Now, here is a soil sample taken from a field in New England. This was taken at Logan Labs soil report back in 16 from a field in New England. This field is actually a grass field. In other words, it's just been a pretty lawn for better part of 20 years, maybe. Before that, it was farmed. Uh, it has a pH of 6.4, which is a critical thing a lot of people usually look at. I'm sorry, it has a cation exchange capacity of 6.4, which is right here in the center. You see 6.24. And then we see our calcium, magnesium, potassium, and then sodium. And then these are referred to as our exchangeable cations. Then you have your anions, which is sulfur and, and, and phosphorus. Then you have your base saturation percent. Now, we talked about the percent base saturation. What we're talking about, like I said, is here in this example, we have 42.22% calcium. What does that mean? That means when they look to see how many, you see value found, which is right here, 1,404 pounds to the acre. 
they concluded at a depth of eight inches that 1,404 pounds to the acre of calcium was enough to saturate 42.22% of this soil's cation exchange capacity. Have I lost anybody? Okay, good. Wonderful. So when we look at magnesium, we see 9.22%. The same case for magnesium, when they say it's 9.22% base saturation, that means that the value found, 184 pounds, was 9.2 saturated 9.22% of that 6.24 on top. Does that make sense? Now you could have, now every soil has a different cation exchange capacity. You never know what it's going to be until you test it. So when you come up to me and you ask me questions, anything along the lines of what do you think it is, or, you know, I got a farm over somewhere, uh, any idea what my CEC is? No idea. <laughs> Nobody ever really knows. It varies drastically. You come and you ask me questions about, I have this problem or that problem. What could it be? Until I see something like this, I really don't know what to tell you. The, and... And the thing is, when you get your soils tested, folks, a lot of the uh, exchange universities and some of the other laboratories, they don't test them like this, and they don't give you all that information. And when you don't get this much, you look at it and you think, that's a lot of information. But really, if you don't get this information, then you don't really know. It, it, they're giving you incomplete information, and it's hard to make decisions. And I'll give you examples. I, don't, I didn't have any. I couldn't dig up any, any anyway. Uh, some of the labs I've, I've had tested in the past or some of the samples that I had tested in the past from different laboratories, but they'll do something like maybe just test calcium and then maybe magnesium and potassium. They don't bother with sodium at all. You see this in this example, they say that they found 27 pounds and then they tell us that our base saturation of sodium is 0.69. That's very, very little. Very, very little. Um, but if you just told me if you don't even bother to test it and say this soil was from the coast somewhere and it's getting a lot of seawater on it and you don't even bother to test for sodium, sodium could have been 40% of your base saturation. And all you look at is how much calcium, magnesium, and potassium you have, then you're not doing yourself a favor, are you? If you're in a desert and saline soils, you could have the same thing. Sodic soils, especially. The soil is not considered sodic until it's more than 10% base saturation, 10 to 15%. But they don't usually describe it that way. They'll say more than 100 pounds or 200 pounds to the acre or whatever number they give you. But really, it's, that's not what's so important as much as it is what's your base saturation. Because if you have 200 pounds of sodium to the acre, but you have a base saturation, of nine, I mean a cation exchange capacity of 90, then that's not really a big deal. You understand what I mean? Because your percent, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to do the math. I'm just going to throw a number out there. For example, it could be 2% or it could be 3% base saturation, which is not a big deal. Not a big deal at all, folks. So you see what, I'm, what, what this is about is balancing your percents of base saturation that is here. Albrecht's approach was not have this many pounds and you'll always be good no matter what. No, it was balancing the available nutrients in the soil, but in order to balance that, you need to know what the soil can carry. 
Here's another soil sample. The first off, this, this one was taken in New England, right? About 40 inches of annual rainfall, and I don't know what they are supposed to, 15 feet of snow or whatever it is. So they get a lot of precipitation every year. All right, so low pH, uh, so my argument here is that low soil pH is something I wanted to get to. A, a lot of times, a tremendous amount of the literature that you read from extension agents and everywhere else really argue and really push pH. Oh, I got to get my pH down or I got to get it up or, oh, the pH needs to be this and the pH needs to be that. I handed out some books yesterday on production guides and they'll tell you, hey, you want to grow strawberries, you need a pH of 6.5. You want to grow blueberries, you need a pH of 4.5. You want to grow uh, tomatoes, they really like it at 6.5 to 7 or whatever. And they tell you all these pHs, but really what the, <laughs> you know, it's naked information and it really doesn't matter. I'm growing tomatoes and I grow tomatoes very well, very excellent, beautiful tomatoes at 7 to 8. Why? Because I don't really focus on hydrogen. It's not that important. All that pH is telling you is what your base saturation of hydrogen is, which normally we like to keep around 10%, and that usually equals 6.5, a pH of 6.5. But it's not that super important. I'm growing in artificial soils. If you're growing in real soils, it gets more complicated. But you, still, that's not that critical. So we'll look at the pH here. You got a 5.2, a 6.1, a 5.9, a 7, uh, 5.2 at the top. You look down here at your base saturations of hydrogen, you got 39%. What does that tell you? That's an acid soil. I'm sorry, those are the C's. Yeah, no, those are the, the pHs there, 5.2, 6.1, 5.9, 5.2. in the 5.2 here and the 5.2 over here, they both have 39% base saturation in the soil of hydrogen. What is that telling you? It tells you your pH. It's, it's, it's linear, I mean, it's, they're, they're exactly related. You don't really need to dwell so heavily on pH. Folks, really, it's overrated. You got to get the thing balanced. Both these soils, what do they need? Some, everybody would jump to lime. Would they even bother to tell you what type of lime you need? Probably not. So what does lime mean to you? Calcium? So I got, I got one answer was calcium. Do I have any other answers? I'm sorry? A cation, that's tr very true. Any other answers? What does lime mean? Uh, how many people actually, uh, how, how many farmers or growers, gardeners are in here? There's a few. I, I'm sure you guys have used lime, right? You go and you lime your soil, right? Why do you lime your soil? <laughs> to raise the pH, people say, right? How do you know what lime you're using? You ever look at the bag of lime to see what it says? Is it dolomitic limestone? Is it calcitic limestone? What's the percent, the, the calcium carbonate equivalent, et cetera, et cetera? Those things are important. So when you get that bag of lime and you decide, okay, you go to the store. I know uh, Tractor Supply Corp has sell some the lime. They, they, they put it on sale. They give you, you know, put it up front and center in the springtime. There's a lime for you. Go ahead. It's four bucks for a 50-pound bag. And, you know, it's on sale, blah, blah, blah. You buy it. You, I, I look at the back of the bag. I find 20% calcium, 10%, 11%, 13%, sometimes magnesium. Well, both that calcium and magnesium in the, in the limestone, I'm sorry, in the, in the bag of lime are bonded to a carbonate. That's why it's called calcium carbonate, magnesium carbonate. It's the carbonate that reduces that pH. It's the calcium and the magnesium knocking that hydrogen off of the colloid that make that hydrogen available to bond with the carbonate to go away and raise your pH. Does that make sense? All right, so dolomitic limestone, for example, 
Look at this, how you can't really make it out, but I don't have a pointing stick and this guy doesn't really, there it is. So you look at the magnesium that's right here, 9.2% base saturation. You go straight across here, 5.78 base saturation. Which one really needs calcium, which one really needs magnesium across these four here? I'd say this one right here, right? First, you need to know your, well, I'll take a step back. Where should your magnesium be is the first question you need to ask. And if you don't know the answer to that question, then you probably shouldn't be using dolomitic limestone. Or <laughs> where should your calcium be? Which, one over, which of these four really need calcium? Well, you need an answer as to where your calcium ought to be. So you see, this is where William Albert comes in. He figured out in the 1930s. In the 1930s, he was arguing that the food that was being grown in the 1930s, it's, it's, what year is it? 2019? So, 80 years ago. 80 years ago, folks. Before your grandfather, well, for some of us, my grandfather was just a little boy. But for some of us, it's before our parents and grandparents were born. That was a long time ago. And he was saying in the 1930s that the agricultural production system of the 1930s and 20s was deficient in, in nutrition. And that we were headed for a crisis of disease in this country. In the 1930s, they were arguing this. So he began to really study disease in animals, livestock, etc., and how to get rid of it. And he started to look for answers in the soil. And that's where he came up with soil mineral balancing. What should be in that soil? So, I'll fast forward to his conclusions. For calcium, you can't really see it in this, but it says right there, 60 to 70%. For magnesium, 10 to 20%. For potassium, 2 to 5%. For sodium, 0.5 to 3%. For hydrogen, 10 to 15%. Does that make sense? So, again, like we say here, this is a, the pH is very low here, which will always correlate with a very high base saturation. Always. It, it, it's always that way. So when we want to balance these soils, we need to be looking at calcium and magnesium, potassium and sodium, and we need to actually try to hit the mark on each and every single one. So for certain crops and certain soils, you need to change what you want. So if you got a clay soil, you really want to run a, you really want to run a higher base saturation of calcium to try to flocculate those soils because calcium flocculates soils. It opens them up. The reason why it does so more so than magnesium is because calcium, if you remember those plates that I talked about, when we start looking at plates like this, if you're, putting, if you're filling these plates with calcium, calcium is a bigger molecule than magnesium. And I know you guys are thinking, and I'm talking at the elemental level now, we're talking about angstroms here but if 65 percent of this or even 68 or 70 percent of that is calcium that's a much bigger molecule than hydrogen for sure hydrogen is tiny extremely tiny so if this is 40 percent hydrogen you can see how those plates are all going to come closer together 
You understand? It pulls them closer together. So when you put calcium in the ground, it actually flocculates that clay and opens and spreads them out, and it makes that clay less sticky, and it actually starts to change the color in the clay, darkening it up usually. So this is one of the reasons why with clay, so it, it varies, but usually, like it says here, we want to be 60 to 70%, and I have actually gone and pushed some soils as high as 80%. So if I'm working with alkalinic soils, what am I missing out of that 100%? Remember, alkalinic soils means a high pH, which means no hydrogen, which means that 10% is probably missing. So now I've got to account for that 10%, and I have to essentially say, well, I know I'm not going to get this soil to be acidic overnight. I'm going to have to try to balance this the rest of that 90%, take that 10% and spread it amongst, amongst the calcium, potassium, and magnesium. And usually what I do is I go after the calcium because it's really, really hard to get that calcium down. I had a question over here in the middle somewhere. Okay, so we'll move on. All right, so soils, uh, here's a soil, same soil here. Soils taken from a field, uh, all right, extremely low pH on both fields. <coughs> Oh, here's another interesting thing, another interesting point. These two, these two samples that are on the far right, they were taken from the same field, the same alfalfa field. And I just wanted to bring about, look at the drastic differences in this field. And I recall, as I remember that this very back portion here, the alfalfa didn't come up more than like a foot, and it was never mowed all year long. It did terrible. Look at it, it's pH of 5.2, it's base saturation 39% of calcium, you have 45% here, uh, I'm sorry, of, of hydrogen, 45.47 of calcium here, and then of course the, the neighboring field had 61.27, so in other words, one was lined, the other one wasn't. Why? I don't know. But as I said yesterday, when 50% or less of those cations in your, when less than 50% of the cations in the soil I'm sorry, when calcium is less than 50% of the cations in your soil, your roots start to fall apart. Does that make sense? Your root health tanks big time. So 45.47% base saturation of calcium, that means you're going to have weak roots. And a crop like alfalfa, a legume with nodules forming in those roots to fix nitrogen to actually grow that crop. If you've got weak roots in your pasture fields or in your alfalfa fields, you are not going to get good nitrogen fixation. If you do not get good nitrogen fixation, you're not going to get good alfalfa. Make sense? And these soils like this with low calcium are soils that are very, very, very susceptible to root pathogens. Omycete pathogens, ascomycete pathogens. I talked about pythium. I talked about root rots, uh, crown gals, etc., etc. Anything associated with the roots any soil pathogen period that's going to attack your roots is going to have a heyday when you've got 45% or less, or 50% or less, base saturation of calcium. You've got to get that number up. So again, here's some phony humus looking at these base saturations. If you were to say 100% base saturation of hydrogen, you'd have nothing but hydrogen on that colloid. So essentially what you have in these 40% of that is hydrogen. So it's really, you don't, <laughs> you really don't want to go down that road. How much time we got left here? Okay. So, so uh, this now, 
now we're going to move a little closer to home. Well, not home, but he, I guess home. Uh, I took these samples in uh, the Four Corners area. For those of you that are not familiar with this, that is uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah. So these samples were taken in the Four Corners area. I think this one was in Arizona. The other two were New Mexico, but they were within like 30 minutes of each other. Anyhow, so we look at these samples now. We're moving to a completely different part of the country. So first off, what do you have for base saturation of hydrogen? Zero, straight across the board. Why? It's alkalinic soils. There's not ever going to be any hydrogen on your colloids. Okay, great. Now, next, pH of the soil, 8.1, 8.7, 8.7. Very alkalinic. Yet the natives have been farming these lands for, I don't know, a long time. They'll tell you forever, but I think it's really more like a thousand years. So I don't know how they did it, but they've been doing it for a thousand years in these soils. So something... They're doing something right. Now we'll look at calcium. Desired value, 6,446 6, pounds to the acre. Uh, value found, 7,838 pounds to the acre. What does that tell you right there? You're in a cal calcareous soil. Calcareous soil. That means a lot of calcium. This one right These All these fields are really close to each other. They're all very similar, but this one right here, in the yellow has been farmed for 70 years maybe on and off it was originally settled by the mormons and they started farming right along the san juan river while these other two fields are virgin land never been farmed and what's interesting is one look at the cation exchange capacity how it's gone down what you're really seeing is a reduction in the actual nutrients in the soil and two is the change in pH from 8.7 to 8.1, a reduction in the pH. So how do you get a reduction in that pH is largely to do with the fact that you're growing something. Because remember, like we saw in that video, what, what do the roots do? What do plants do through their roots? And they send out hydrogen ions in exchange for cations, right? So when you're growing something, and when you're constantly growing something, those crops are constantly putting hydrogen ions into the soil system and taking cations out. So out here in the desert, you can simply, by years of growing, reduce your pH. Of course, it takes years to do that. It doesn't happen overnight. But you can see those trends out in the desert. And of course, you have, uh, you still don't have any base saturation. But, and also, these are sandy soils. Why do you have such a high cation exchange capacity in a sandy soil? Normally, it's down at less than 10. It's because there's a lot of salts built up in this soil. In other words, when you sample these soils, they are very uh, sil uh, they're, they're saline soils. They have a lot of salts built up from years and years of just no rain. Things weathering and sitting in these soils. So that's why you tend to see high exchange capacities. But really, what it's telling you is that these nutrients are there and plant available. It's just that they're not going anywhere because it doesn't rain and nobody's growing anything. So they just sit there. But uh, anyhow, this is the condition you have going on. You have a, a sandy soil with a low cation exchange capacity, actual cation exchange capacity, but you have a lot of salts in the soil. So when you take those type of soils in to be sampled, oftentimes they come back with the, these excesses. So if you don't get the right type of soil test, you know, they just tell you, hey, have, you should have this many pounds or that many pounds. You don't, you don't really see those imbalances. You don't have a way to account for them. This is why it's so important that you get the right type of testing in the right type of laboratory. And 
that they do the right type of extraction methods. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the order of cation affinity. Now what this is, is cations affinity to be held onto the colloid. In other words, which ones are held on stronger? Remember we saw the video where the potassium was not quite so strong and the calcium would you know, be a little bit stronger than the, what was the last one there? I don't remember. Iron was the one that held on at the very end. Well, here's some examples of copper, nickel, lead, cobalt, ca uh, calcium, zinc, manganese, and magnesium. And, you know, it's just electron uh, conductivity, but you don't really need to focus on that. Essentially, it's telling you this, how hard it's held on to there. What's interesting is lead. Lead contaminated soils. What does that do to your soil? Okay, so um, anyhow, if you get too much lead in your soils, it tends to actually hold on to the, the, the colloids, and it's, it's very, very difficult to get lead out of your soil. So when you're dealing with lead-contaminated soils, sometimes you have to over-amend them with things. But then, when you over-amend them with things, you may loosen up that lead. That lead may end up in your crop, and then it may end up in you. So that's... I won't go into farming in lead-contaminated soils, but it's just an interesting thing to note. Of course, aluminum and hydrogen aren't there because they tend to drive acidity. Okay, there are, there are plants that can take, uh, uh, what do they call it? Um, bioremediation is what they call it, where they can uptake lead. Uh, there's a whole thing. Yes, because lead arsenate was used real heavily on, uh, as a whole pesticide. Uh, so now... Um, they look at lead. And then, again, part of the reason why they don't also why it's so hard for many plants to uptake them is because it's held on there so strong into the soil that it, it can't release them. But if you start to really dump a lot of fertilizers on there and knock them loose, you can actually see lead go into some of these crops that are, really would never really take up lead. But there's, uh, I don't, it's been a while since I've gotten into gardening and farming in lead arsenate soils. But for many, many years, they, they use lead arsenate to uh, um, fight different pests and diseases in orchards particularly. And a lot of those fields are no longer orchards. And oftentimes they sell them off and they build homes on them or whatever. And uh, a lot of the urban sprawl has been in farmland, old farmland. And that old farmland is heavily contaminated with lead arsenate. Uh, and people don't know that. So then they buy these fields and these homes and then they try to go outside and garden in it and they don't realize that they're gardening in, in soils that are contaminated with lead and arsenic and other heavy metals. Okay, so the question is uh, about CEC and trying to make CEC, increasing your CEC in your soil, in, uh, in other words, trying to get a bigger cup. My first recommendation for you would be to try first balance what you have, okay? That's going to help you largely. Whatever your CEC currently is, get that balanced. Then it's a matter of growing and introducing organic matter and trying to increase your humus because your humus has a tremendous, accounts, for, accounts for a tremendous portion of your, organic, of your exchange capacity. Secondly, uh, certain things like coconut core, peat moss, uh, vermiculite, etc., can also have uh, very early high CEC levels. So if you can, you know, th these things are expensive though. So my best recommendation for outdoor production and not indoor production is to try to find nurseries that are getting rid of, you know, that, that you know, do a lot, deal with a lot of transplants because what they'll do is that they only ever use it once. They'll go out, they'll buy the peat moss or coca core. Usually it's a peat moss mixed with something else. 
they'll grow, they'll start whatever plants they're going to start, then they'll transplant them, and then those whole trays with the soil and everything gets dumped outside, and it's a waste for them, and they have mountains of this stuff, and then they're usually just looking for people to take it away. And this stuff is excellent nutrition. I mean, if you get it, you get that stuff and you put it into soils like that, like the one you're describing, a clay soil with a low CEC or, or even a sandy soil with a low CEC, and you introduce high levels of uh, peat moss into that soil, not only are you going to really flocculate that soil, increase the nutrient reten- uh, moisture retention, but you're also going to increase your cation exchange capacity in that soil. Uh, the artificial soil that media that I put together is a mixture of compost, peat moss, and coconut core, and it's usually around 27, a CEC of 27. So if you're dealing with a five or something and you start to amend, uh, slowly you will increase that number. It, but it's a tremendous amount that you need, and it's not necessarily practical to be purchasing it at all. Uh, if it's just a garden and it's just maybe you know a few hundred square feet, it's not a big deal. But when you're talking about acres, that's just not practical. You gotta, you gotta accept with, you know, what you have. Okay, the question is, can we overdo anything if we add a significant amount of hardwood tree leaves uh, that may fall? Or I, My only concern would be the same as composting excessively, that you could increase your potassium too high, especially if you have a uh, low CEC soil. So that's the challenge, just compost only in a low CEC soil, is that compost is usually... I mean, I could it'd probably take me a second to find it. But anyway, I, I always test my compost. And I have found some compost that is extremely high in potassium. Uh, also, if your compost is coming from, like, municipal waste, like restaurants, well, what do people, people like food that has been salted. So what's usually in that compost? A lot of sodium. You can get your sodium out of whack, and it'll start blocking your potassium, and eventually you got a mess. So if you don't know the compost that you're putting in your ground, you better you got to be real cautious with it. That's my recommendation. Uh, you, you, you overdo compost and you're going to be in trouble. But the good thing is that with potassium, if you do get too much potassium in there, is that most crops take up a lot of potassium. So if you put conservative amounts every year, there's a pretty good chance you're going to take up most of that potassium. So then you don't have to amend with potassium. You can just keep adding compost. All right, so the question is... Um, when you have a, I guess, do you assume that the CEC is 100% saturated at all times? And the answer is yes. And then what are you doing when you add, in his example, calcium? If you want to increase calcium, so you add a large amount of calcium to the soil, what is that going to do? Well, that is going to knock something off. Uh, the only way that I could say it is, you know, if I had you know, blue water and green water or whatever, and I mix them all together, you know, I mean, they don't all fit in one bottle, right? So this is as big as the bottle is, so we'll say it's just clear, but I want to add some other thing to it. When I pour it in there, it's going to change the color, and the excess is going to fall out, right? That's exactly what you're doing in the soil. That's why you shouldn't dump huge amounts of fertilizers at one time uh, when you have these serious imbalances. It's something you got you, you got to kind of sit down and think about what's practical and what you can actually afford to do. So when you're actually farming especially folks that are doing row crops or big acreage, you can't afford to de- dump these massive amounts of fertilizers down like you possibly could afford if you're just working on a garden that's maybe just a few hundred square feet. When it's just a few hundred square feet, you know, it's not a big deal. You can do 10,000 pounds to the acre equivalent of lime with, with just one bag maybe or, you know, two bags or whatever. It doesn't take a whole lot. So, yes, it does ultimately leach. The ideal is to try to put some down 
If you're really out of whack, then you, you have to just accept the fact that you're going to leach some of that out. And where it goes is usually to the lower layers of the soil. So what I wanted to talk in the next hour was, you know, a lot of calculating, you know, how, how to calculate how much calcium to put down or how much magnesium to put down per acre. And then, of course, taking into consideration the depth of your soil, how deep you're plowing, how deep you're working it. And then, if, you know, other mathematical equations that we have to talk about there. Okay, the question is, he raises, he grows alfalfa, and he, when phosphorus is cheap, he'll add extra. Um, if he can, you know, of course, if he's got the money to be able to do that. And will it be there next year is your question. The answer is, if you don't overdo alfalfa, uh, phosphorus, yes, because pho phosphorus does not move. When you put it in the ground, it does not go anywhere. However, the exception is, the upper Mississippi River Delta, where corn belt, corn country, they dump so much phosphorus on the ground that it's leaching into the waters, into the rivers, especially the Mississippi River. When you get to the point where you're leaching phosphorus, you have an insane amount of phosphorus in the ground. You needed to stop adding phosphorus a long time ago. So, yes, it shouldn't, but yes, it could. It all depends on where you are. You need to know where you are with phosphorus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.